The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Innovation Now for Follicular Lymphoma, New Evidence for Immunotherapy, Targeted and Chemo-Free Options. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SZT 860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello and welcome to Innovation Now for Follicular Lymphoma. I'm Dr. Loretta Nostabile from MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, and today we're going to explore some recent developments that can inform the use of newer treatment modalities in relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma, particularly immunotherapy in the form of bispecific antibodies and cellular therapies, established chemo-free treatment platforms, and epigenetic and targeted agents. During this activity, we'll focus on new evidence emerging from the American Society of Hematology annual meeting in 2022. And throughout the presentation, I'll provide some practical points that will help you apply some of the findings we'll cover. Let's begin. So first, a brief introduction into follicular lymphoma. So it's the most common indolent subtype of non-Hodgkin lymphoma and comprises about 17 to 35% of all NHL cases in the US and Western Europe. Chemoimmunotherapy regimens are some of the most common approaches applied in frontline, and that's because they're quite effective and are established in some of our uh, expert panel guidelines. However, despite the very favorable outcomes we can achieve with frontline chemoimmunotherapy, the majority of patients can anticipate a relapse of their disease. We also know that subsequent therapies result in shorter duration of response, even in the modern era, this suggests we do need more effective and well-tolerated treatments. We also need better tools to risk stratify patients because outcomes can be quite heterogeneous. So I'll walk you through some of the data that supports those statements and one of the key factors in determining prognosis right now, which is an early progression event within 24 months. As I mentioned, some of the best outcomes are observed with our frontline approach. Uh, followed by less favorable outcomes in that second and third line and beyond uh, treatment experiences. Again, this suggests that we need novel therapies to um, have an impact on the natural history of this disease. And we also need to be aware of when the toxicity of therapy might be justifiable, particularly if we anticipate those outcomes to be less favorable. One of the clinical tools we have to risk stratify patients is observing their first time to progression following frontline chemoimmunotherapy. Among those patients that progress within 24 months, we've now seen across a number of observational cohorts that that can lead to significantly inferior overall survival. First reported by Carla Casulo to be about five years among those patients experiencing a progression event within 24 months following frontline RCHOP-based therapy. The good news is for the patients who don't progress within 24 months, their overall survival can actually come quite close to an age sex match cohort without lymphoma. So that tells us two things. The unmet need currently is to identify those early progressors and pursue more novel uh, or aggressive approaches because the toxicity is gonna be less informative in that cohort of patients Vice versa, those patients that experience a progression event beyond two years, their outcome is going to be quite favorable. So then we need to consider the toxicity of every treatment decision. That being said, those patients who have a progression event within 24 months has now been validated across a number of series, and that does confer poor prognosis. 
Now, there are important things to recognize. Uh, many of these patients don't have biopsies at that time stamp, so whether or not we know those patients are truly just a refractory follicular or have transformed lymphoma uh, does emphasize the need for biopsies to ensure we know what we're treating. That being said, for those patients who do indeed have follicular lymphoma and are relapsing within 24 months, we know those patients are facing much inferior outcomes than those who don't have an event in that time period. Before I walk you through how the emerging treatment strategies may impact the treatment landscape for a patient with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma, let's first consider what the standard of care options are. So these are the current NCCN guidelines that describe either a preferred or an alternative or other consideration for a patient in second line. It's important to consider if you're thinking through chemoimmunotherapy in that second line setting, many of these patients may have had a frontline chemoimmunotherapy approach. So for instance, you probably don't want to re-expose them to six more cycles of anthracycline if they had our CHOP as their frontline approach. I also feel that re-exposing them to bendamustine has some disadvantages, particularly as it pertains to impact on bone marrow reserve or negative impact on T-cell subsets. They can put those patients at risk for infection and that can be for a prolonged period of time. So again, in my opinion, I think it is a reasonable consideration to alternate the chemotherapy backbone, meaning if a patient had RCHOP as their frontline approach, you could consider bendamustine in combination with either rituximab or obinutuzumab, depending on the treatment duration following frontline. You'll also see some of the targeted therapies emerge in second line, such as lenalidomide in combination with rituximab, which is based off of the AUGMENT study and I'll walk you through the five-year updates reported at ASH this year. You could exchange the CD20 antibody and combine lenalidomide with obinutuzumab based off of the Galen study. And in my practice, I consider that for patients who are progressing within six months of their last rituximab exposure. What's changed most recently is the recent FDA approval of mosentuzumab, which is a T-cell engager or a CD20, CD3 bispecific antibody that's approved now for patients who've had at least two prior lines of therapy. When we move into that third line or later space where mosentuzumab is currently approved, you have even more options, including more targeted options and CAR T-cell therapy options. Copanlisib is a pan-PI3 kinase inhibitor that has most of its activity against the alpha and delta subunit. It's an IV formulation with intermittent dosing, but it is continued until progression or intolerance. Tazimetastat is an oral EZH2 inhibitor that has a unique label in that it's approved in third line for patients with an EZH2 mutation, which occurs in about 20% of patients with follicular lymphoma, or in the relapse setting uh, for any patient where uh, safety of the alternative options could be a, a concern because tazimetastat is quite well tolerated as a single agent. And then we have two FDA approved CD19 autologous CAR T-cell therapies, AxiCell and TisaCell, uh, again approved in that third line or later setting. So how do you navigate all of these options? Well, I do think there are patient-specific characteristics uh, that we weigh in terms of our goals of treatment, which is to give them uh, longevity of life, uh, marrying that with the negative potential impact on that quality of life. 
So first, let's talk about the bispecific antibodies and where they may fit into the treatment landscape, given that's the most recent approval of mosentuzumab in that third line or later setting. And we did see updates at ASH this year. So just to remind everyone what a bispecific antibody's mechanism of action is, is essentially taking an antibody and engaging CD20 on the target tumor cell, um, but also a second engagement of CD3, which is on the host uh, T cells that are in circulation and uh, ideally bringing the uh, activated T cell to the tumor microenvironment or exposing it to these cells even in circulation could then lead to uh, toxic death from the T cell mitigated against that tumor cell. We know that CD20 is a great antigen based off of years of experience with rituximab and things like obinutuzumab being quite effective therapies, particularly in follicular lymphoma. The other nice advantage of these T cell engagers is they're potentially off the shelf and ready to go. We don't have to refer them to a specialized center. They don't have to undergo leukophoresis with the intent to manufacture a product. Uh, so this is the single arm phase two study of mosentuzumab that led to FDA approval recently. So the study enrolled patients with grade one through 3A follicular lymphoma. They did have to have good performance status, zero to one, that's quite typical for prospective studies. And they had to have at least two prior lines of therapy that included an alkylator and an anti-CD20 antibody. Based off of the uh, mechanism of action, because these therapies are quite effective and can lead to superphysiologic activation of T cells, there is a dose step up that is required during cycle one. So you can see here in the study schema, patients received one milligram of mosentuzumab on day one, two milligrams a week later at day eight, and then 60 milligrams on day 15. This was repeated on day one of cycle two, but now we go to um, less frequent dosing occurring now on a three-week schedule. Starting at the beginning of cycle three, the doses roll down to 30 milligrams. And this is time-limited therapy. So for patients who achieved a complete response of mosentuzumab dose every three weeks starting at cycle two, they could stop after eight cycles if they were in a CR. If they had a stable disease or a partial response, they could continue up to 17 cycles and then stop. But again, weekly dosing during cycle one with this dose step up, starting with cycle two and thereafter every three weeks. There was no mandatory hospitalization for these patients to monitor for acute toxicity. And the primary endpoint of this study was response. You can see of these 90 patients treated in that third line or later setting, the objective response was 78%, 60% of these patients achieving a complete response. And that was independent of underlying mutation status, including high-risk features such as P53. These responses were also quite durable. So you can see outlined in this study is the uh, duration of response and then the duration of complete responders with the median duration of response at 24 months not being reached median PFS at 24 months of about 48%, uh, and median overall survival, again, uh, at two years being 87%. So this is quite impressive in my opinion, particularly given these patients were quite heavily pretreated um, and it all had prior CD20 and alkylator therapies. When we look at the safety profile of these bispecific antibodies, one important thing to recognize 
is that cytokine release syndrome appears to be a class effect. And again, these are antibodies that engage T cells. And so it's not surprising, I guess, to see that cytokine release syndrome is one of the most common adverse events observed. It's also important to recognize that it can vary in terms of uh, timing to onset, uh, intensity, most seems to be confined during that first cycle when you may have um, most antigen-driven T-cell engagement. And you can see here the median time to onset following the first exposure is five hours. Day 15, where you get to the full dose, the median time to onset is 27 hours. That's important in terms of educating patients and their caregivers as to when to anticipate uh, that first onset of CRS. And for those who are not familiar with how we define cytokine release syndrome, it's generally fever first, and then that can be accompanied with hypotension or hypoxia. Uh, so generally we counsel patients uh, that fever is what we're on the lookout for. If they're feeling faint or short of breath, then that should warrant uh, presentation to the emergency room because most of these patients can be managed outpatient. This is not infusion reaction where you would anticipate the toxicity or side effects to happen during the infusion of the cells. Again, this is gonna be later in onset, generally after the patients have left your center. In terms of what do you do to intervene when this toxicity sets in, generally for grade one, this is managed with uh, supportive care, antipyretics. If it progresses to grade two, which again, either uh, includes hypotension or hypoxia, that's when you can intervene with things like tocilizumab, which was an IL-6 blocking antibody, or corticosteroids. Uh, again, generally, uh, in my experience, one dose of dexamethasone or tocilizumab uh, can result in uh, resolution of the toxicity. Another CD20, CD3 bispecific that's being developed in follicular lymphoma is epcritimab. One of the unique aspects of epcritimab is it's a subcutaneous administration, which may lead to more blunted absorption and may help mitigate that cytokine release syndrome that's typically observed during cycle one. We haven't seen the results yet of the pivotal phase two study of epcritimab, but among the patients that have been treated to date in the phase one, again, the efficacy looks to be quite promising with epcritimab, and again, looks favorable in terms of other CD20, CD3 antibodies that are under development. So we're eagerly awaiting the results of their pivotal uh, phase two study. When we look uh, at the combination of epcritimab with something like lenalidomide and rituximab, which is the natural uh, sort of progression of drug development with these CD20, CD3 bispecific antibodies. Uh, one of the rational combinations, in my opinion, is with a cell mod or an immune modulatory agent like lenalidomide. And we know lenalidomide uh, and rituximab are quite effective in relapsed follicular lymphoma. There may be questions posed as do you need to combine with rituximab, which is a naked CD20 antibody, where you have competition for antigen, uh, for instance. One of the unique aspects of epcritimab is the FC region is not silent, and so you could potentially uh, have additive activity with something like rituximab, which is why uh, this drug, for instance, is being combined with R-squared in relapsed follicular lymphoma. And we saw the phase one results uh, reported at ASH this year. This is the study schema, and you can see quite high response rates, an objective response rate of 96%. Now, relatively small sample size and quite short follow-up of less than six months, but promising nonetheless. 
Again, when we're looking at the toxicity profile, it's important that you don't want to see additive toxicity if you're combining a bispecific antibody with an immune modulating agent such as lenalidomide. And again, relatively small sample size. Nonetheless, it does not appear that we see higher rates of cytokine release syndrome, for instance. And actually, it looks to compare quite favorably to outcomes we've seen with single agents. Odronextamab is another CD20, CD3 biospecific. Uh, we did see the results of their single arm phase two study at ASH this year, the ELM2, that also took patients with relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma. You can see here very uh, impressive efficacy results with their waterfall plot suggesting very high response rates. 82% of this population achieved an objective response with 75% achieving a complete response. Now there are differences in the duration of treatment with odronexumab. This is dosed until progression or intolerance, whereas a drug like mosentuzumab is dosed to eight cycles for those achieving a CR, up to 17 cycles for those achieving stable disease. Uh, so again, differences in the study schema, differences uh, in terms of uh, the dose ramp up with this agent in different study populations, but it does look to be quite promising. So in my opinion, the bispecific antibodies are likely gonna have an impact in the treatment landscape for relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, we now have mosentuzumab approved in that third line or later setting. So I'm gonna illustrate where I will use this uh, agent in practice. If I have a patient who has chemoimmunotherapy frontline, whether it's bendamustine or rituximab or RCHOP, I do think most patients are likely getting a bendamustine-based uh, option. At relapse, if they don't have any signs of transformed disease, I'm likely to use lenalidomide in combination with rituximab and reserve my anthracycline for a later time point. When patients relapse after lenalidomide rituximab, then I have several other options, including CAR-T, PI3 kinase inhibitor, EZH2 inhibitor. At that time point, I might reach for mosentuzumab, uh, given it has a fixed duration of treatment. It's off the shelf and ready to go. I don't have to actually uh, undergo manufacturing for those patients. And in my experience, having uh, participated in the phase one, two studies uh, is quite well tolerated. Okay, what about updates on CAR-T in lymphoma? We have two FDA-approved CAR-T products. When might I consider CAR-T for the treatment of relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma? As I mentioned, based off of Zuma-5, Axi cells FDA-approved, and based off of the Alara study, TISA cells approved. Both are approved for patients who've had two prior lines of systemic therapy, I don't have any other way to identify these patients in terms of biomarkers or clinical characteristics that may help inform that treatment decision. When we look at the long-term outcomes from Zuma 5 uh, we, that were reported this year at ASH, and I have to acknowledge long-term, we have a median of three years of follow-up on this study, but impressive nonetheless. What jumps out at me in regards to these curves is that the lymphoma-specific survival is quite favorable. Uh, suggesting that again, patients are not succumbing to lymphoma very frequently. And you can start to see plateauing of that curve, suggesting that there is a potential to cure patients with CAR T cell therapy with relapsed follicular lymphoma. Now, it was likely a quite select patient population that went on the Zuma 5 study. Similar to the bispecific trials, they had to have a CD20 and an alkylator. There were sort of additional qualifiers. The majority of these patients were actually refractory to their last treatment 
over enriched for those POD24 uh, patients and those that were double refractory, refractory to a CD20 and an alkylator. So I do think this was a pretty heavily pretreated patient population, meaning they're, they're progressing on effective treatment options. And it was a young population for lymphoma with median age and both uh, Zuma 5 and Alara being less than, than 60. There was a retrospective attempt to try and compare the outcomes observed in Zuma 5 with what you might consider in terms of other standard of care options. This was called Scholar 5, where the orange curves uh, in this, these uh, Kaplan-Meier curves represented patients who got standard of care options. Now, there's always limitations in these retrospective studies. That there's Really, it's impossible to completely match these patients in both arms, uh, though there are different strategies that can be employed to try and do an indirect comparison as uh, best as possible, but it's going to be weighted based off of clinicians' perceptions on what are the most important baseline characteristics. And then you're going to have the limitations of what standard of care options exist in the settings that these patients were recruited, including heavy recruitment from European countries where they have uh, more limited standard of care options. But all those limitations aside, you do, it's hard not to observe the fact that the outcomes were quite favorable in the Zuma 5 as opposed to what was achieved uh, with the standard of care options, both in regard to PFS and OS, suggesting that this is really one of the most effective options available in the relapse setting. One of the potential advantages of TSA cell is that it has a more favorable safety profile, in my opinion. And it's a 4-1BB construct, which leads to less sort of marked uh, T-cell expansion in the first two weeks, uh, followed by a little bit more uh, persistence of these cars. And that may be an attractive feature when you're considering an inlet lymphoma disease uh, that may, um, the, the characteristics of the disease lend itself to uh, not a lot of symptoms, but persistence. And so when we look at the outcomes of the ALARA study, again, more mature follow-up now reported at the ASH-22 uh, meeting. You can see that the patients who achieved a complete response had quite favorable duration of response. For the patients who achieved a partial response, you can see pretty dramatic drop-off in those curves, suggesting that the goal of this therapy is to achieve a complete response, in my opinion, because uh, that's likely to translate into a more durable CR. So how do I navigate between bispecifics and CAR-T for relapse follicular lymphoma? I do think that the toxicity of AxiCell is worth noting. About 15% of patients who got AxiCell on the Zuma 5 study had grade 3 or higher neurotoxicity. Uh, so that generally does require uh, transfer to the ICU for close monitoring. The vast majority are going to recover, uh, but that is uh, something that most patients with follicular lymphoma are not anticipating ever going into a hospital setting, and a 15% chance they may end up in an ICU, even if it's temporary. Uh, I'm likely going to reserve that therapy for my young patients that are fit without significant comorbidities, where the disease is progressing quickly through effective therapies, and in my opinion, effective are chemoimmunotherapy and lenalidomide-based treatments. If I have a slightly older or a slightly frailer patient, uh, that again, the disease is behaving like transformed disease. You have a lot of B symptoms. LDH is quite high. They may even have hypercalcemia, but I biopsy them and it's follicular lymphoma on the biopsy. I might consider TSA cell for those patients because we know TSA cell is an effective option for transformed disease. And maybe even though I, I biopsy one area of that patient's um, tumor burden, there might be other areas that I'm still not confident don't have some uh, component of large cell lymphoma. 
I'm going to use a buy specific in other scenarios and I'm going to reserve my CAR T till someone who's already had a buy specific and is no longer responding. Though I have one caveat there and that I, I don't know what the impact on T cell fitness or exhaustion will be because we do know that you want to expose these patients to CAR T as soon as you can uh, to try and minimize the impact on uh, the, the efficacy of that CAR since it's an auto product. Okay, what other outcomes or um, innovations have we seen at the most recent ASH meeting? One thing uh, that we saw was an update to the AUGMENT study, as I mentioned, that led to FDA approval of lenalidomide and rituximab in the second line setting uh, based off of a randomized comparison to rituximab plus placebo. It's a five years of update this year, the AUGMENT study. So when this was first published based off of independent review, uh, there was a significant improvement in progression-free survival among the patients treated on the lenalidomide and rituximab arm. The five-year timestamp, we see a significant improvement in overall survival, which I think is quite impactful, given that many of these patients, when they relapse, are going to go on to alternative therapy, including the patients on the rituximab-only arm on this study. Uh, and despite that, uh, we still see a significant impact on overall survival. And that supports my decision to use lenalidomide and rituximab in that second-line setting for the majority of patients. When we think about uh, combination strategies moving forward, because lenalidomide and rituximab looks like an effective option in that second line setting, uh, many of your other trials are going to look at building upon that backbone. And one such example of this is taking tazimetastat, the EZH2 inhibitor, which has some features of skewing that T cell phenotype towards a more uh, sort of um, uh, less favorable to maintaining the survival of those lymphoma cells. And so if you combine it with something like a cell mod or immune modulator like lenalidomide, that might be a potential synergistic combination. So the phase 1b results of uh, the Symphony 1 study, which looked at tazimetastat plus lenalidomide rituximab versus uh, rituximab lenalidomide, uh, which is now moved into randomized stage, the uh, early phase results look to be quite favorable. And when we look at the efficacy, again, quite striking uh, that across uh, both the mutant and wild type population, you're able to see uh, quite striking efficacy in my opinion. So we're all eagerly awaiting the phase three results. Zandalisib is a potent oral PI3 kinase inhibitor. I think the PI3 kinase inhibitor class uh, in general has had uh, less favorable perceptions surrounding the toxicity profile. And so the coastal study looked at a different dosing schema to try and minimize that risk for prolonged uh, PI3 kinase delta inhibition that can lead to some of those immune-mediated toxicities such as colitis, pneumonitis, transaminitis, et cetera. And so patients on this study had daily dosing of uh, zandalisib for the first two months and then went to intermittent dosing with one week on, three weeks off, sort of the reverse schedule of what we see with lenalidomide-based uh, approaches. And with this uh, intervention, you can see very high response rates of 70%, 35% of patients achieving a complete response. And it does appear that this intermittent dosing after the first two cycles can lead to less a severe toxicity, diarrhea still being one of the most common toxicities observed, but only 37%. And again, the majority uh, were grade one or two. 
when we look at um, the efficacy of Zandalisib, again, it, it does appear to be quite favorable with objective response rates of uh, nearly 73%. And that does appear to be uh, consistent across whether or not they had a POD24 status, number of prior therapies, or whether or not they failed to respond to their last therapy. You can also see the durability of response looks to be compare quite favorably in nearly 17 months versus about a year median PFS. So that does at least raise the uh, option for patients uh, for PI3 kinase inhibitors. I do think they're still likely going to be lower on the list of options, just given the fact they're continuous therapy. Um, and there is some skill involved in terms of managing the toxicity that can emerge for patients. So to summarize how I might sequence these targeted approaches, in my practice, uh, I generally will prefer to use lenalidomide rituximab in second line, partly because I want to use it in a patient that's not heavily pretreated. It's quite well tolerated. You have time-limited therapy, and the PFS looks to be quite favorable. And that third line or later setting, again, I'm probably going to favor the bispecifics just given the mechanism of action, the fact it's readily available, and the efficacy and safety looks to be quite impressive in my opinion. I'm going to use CAR-T for those patients that are young and fit. The disease is behaving like transformed disease. I just haven't proven that. Or I'm worried that they've progressed through, again, chemoimmunotherapy, lenalidomide, and maybe even a bispecific. It is a one-time treatment and you're done, so the time-limited therapy approach is quite attractive to me. But I do have to weigh the toxicity, particularly as it pertains to neurotoxicity. In that fourth line or later setting, that's where I'm going to move to those targeted approaches. And I might consider tazimetastat before a PI3 kinase inhibitor, just based off of its very favorable toxicity profile. So I hope this helped uh, walk you through the current treatment landscape for follicular lymphoma and how the emerging therapies might shift or uh, inform treatment selection as uh, the options continue to expand. I think at the end of the day, we're always trying to balance providing prolonged efficacy with a manageable toxicity profile. And I do think that the more novel therapies provide us some options to be able to achieve those goals. So that concludes our exploration of noteworthy and recent evidence with several innovative treatments with established and potential applications in relapse refractory follicular lymphoma. I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. Thank you for your attention. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SZT860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Kiowa Kirin.